Yeah, it's great to be with you guys. Thank you for uh, the, the warm welcome that we have received, that uh, uh, my family has received, and, and, and we're, we're happy to be here. Um, we, we live, our, our home is in uh, Zambia. Um, we're, we're enjoying the States, but we're also looking forward to, to going back home uh, in, in a few weeks. Um, and um, as, as Albert shared, yes, my, my job in, uh, in Zambia is to help develop a master's program. Uh, there, is, there is some good, like, uh, undergrad uh, education in, in Zambia, in Africa. Uh, but because they don't have a, a higher level education, what happens is they are, are constantly dependent upon the West, upon the U.S. and the U.K. and, and you know, places in Europe to send people for theological education. Our goal is to change that. Our goal is to provide a higher level education uh, so that um, we can see theological peers in, in Africa, people who will be able to um, train uh, the African pastors missionaries, counselors, and, and just church leaders. Um, we want to see those raised up in Africa. And we also think this is going to benefit the West as well because you know, we, we, we know that God does, does different things in different places and people's background and experience is significant. And, and we think that it'll, it'll only benefit us over here when we can have um, African uh, pastor scholars that we can learn from as well. So we're, we're excited about the program that we're developing and uh, thank you so much for praying and, and some of you for supporting. It is, um, uh, it, it is a blessing to be part of that ministry. So, well, without further ado, let's get into the text. Uh, that's what I love to do and that's what uh, you, you've called me here to do. So turn in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 7. And we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through uh, 6. Um, those are, are, are the, the first part it is, is the section we're going to uh, be in today. Now, as you're turning there, I want you to think about two very important questions uh, for your life. Perhaps there are no more important basic questions uh, you know, from the perspective of how you you live your life, you're, who you are. And, and those questions are, who are you? What is your identity? At the core of your being, who, who are you? And what do you belong to? What is your identity? And what do you belong to? And, and as you're thinking about those, I, I would encourage you to recognize how those two questions are related. Um, and, and that's because God has made us people who invariably belong to something, right? We belong to something. We're made for covenant community. We're made to belong. You notice, even those people who want to be rugged individualists and do things all on their own look like everybody else who wants to be a rugged individualist and do things all on their own, right? <laughs> invariably, we belong to something, and our, our identity comes from who or what we belong to. So if I ask you, who are you? You might say, well, well I'm an American, or back home, I, people would say, I'm Zambian, or I'm from this tribe, or maybe you would say, I'm from this political party, or, or maybe you would say, uh, who am I? Oh, I went to this school, or I belong to this church. 
Or maybe you would be wearing a, a, a shirt that has your favorite football team, and we would know who you are <laughs> based upon what you belong to, right? My team. Never mind that I can't, you know, throw a ball to save my life. I'm still the one who, you know, we won, even though you sat on your sofa, ate nachos while the other people did the, all the hard work, right? We belong to something, and we get our identity from whom or what we belong to. And in part of the way in which who we belong to gives us an identity is that everything that we belong to has a story about it, which we participate in when we belong. You know, the U.S. has a story about how it got its independence, and we celebrate that story every July 4th, right? So that everybody knows this is your story if you belong to this nation. Or where I'm from in Zambia, the tribes have their story about how they fought and overcome or how they were oppressed. Every family has a story that the children are born into, right? And when we belong to something, we take up that story as our story. Even if we didn't fight in that war or, or even if we weren't oppressed. And through that story, of whatever it is that we belong to, we learn who we are, who our heroes are, who our enemies are. The stories in which we find ourselves are like lenses through which we see the world. And with those lenses come certain sets of expectations, right? If I belong to a family that excels in athletics, then I better be the star of my team when it comes my turn to play. If I belong to an elite school, then I better show how smart I am. If I'm a businessman of an important company, I better be making a certain amount of money, or maybe I don't really belong. Do you ever feel like an imposter? Because you're not living up to the expectations of whatever it is that you belong to. Whatever it is that we belong to can turn into a cruel master that can crush us and suck the life out of us by making us think that if we really want to belong, we always have to work harder and harder and, and sacrifice more. And, and, and to really belong is just out of reach. And this is why true life is only found in belonging to Christ. By belonging to Christ, we have our identity in Him, and then we can really live. Well, these are our themes that I want to show you are developed in this section, in this passage. So um, with that in mind, let's turn our attention to Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulterer if she lives with another man. Literally, actually, in the Greek text, it says if she belongs to another man, by the way. But it, while her husband is alive. She's be called an adulteress if she belongs to another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. 
to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand this passage, this this difficult passage, Lord. Help us see the the metaphor that Paul is making and and recognize what this means for us as, as we have died to something and now live to something in Christ, live to someone in Christ. Lord, help us understand this, the, the, the technical things that are going on in this passage, Lord, and we pray also that it would, would penetrate, you would penetrate by your Spirit into our hearts that we may uh, apply this truth in the way we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said in the prayer, this this is a notoriously difficult passage, and when you read through the commentaries in Romans, there is a, um, an abnormal amount of pages given to this section, uh, and there are multiple different views. I, I can't get into all the technical questions here, um, but, but I think basically uh, what's going on in this passage is it is about, what this passage is about is how we come to belong to Christ, that's why I stress that in the Greek text, literally, it's not live with another man. It's belong to another man. And, and that's an analogy, a metaphor for how we belong to Christ. That, that word belonging is, is there in the text. Now, I think what's going on here is that, remember how I said in the introduction that whatever we belong to outside of Christ will turn into a cruel master that will suck the life out, out of us? And I think that's because behind every other belonging there is on earth is a belonging to the law. Whatever else we belong to on earth, underneath of it, in back of it, if you scratch below the surface, if you go deeper, there is a kind of belonging to the law that participates in that whatever we would belong to outside of Christ. And belonging to the law is, this, is belonging to a captor, a harsh master that says, you are nothing unless you measure up. And I think what's going on in this passage is we learn how it is that Christ breaks us free from belonging to that cruel master so that we may belong to, to Christ, that we may belong to him. And I want to look at three things in this passage. I want to look at how Christ breaks us free from the law. That's number one. Number two, what kind, and we'll see it's an emphasis on kind, what kind of identity we have in belonging to Christ. And finally, how we then live. First of all, uh, how Christ breaks us free from the law. And um, this is important because unless we realize how we are broken free from belonging to the law, we'll never understand how we are are really belonging to Christ. And and before we get really to how, we need to understand why. Why is it so important that we are broken free from from belonging to the law? And and let me just briefly situate this passage in the book of Romans because I think this this illustrates it. If we... um, 
we don't have time to turn there and get into all the text because Romans is quite a, bi a big and complicated book. But um, just go back and read these sections later and, and, and hopefully you'll see this there. But Romans chapter 6 is really all about our identity. It's about who we are, what kind of people we are. Okay, And, and really, Paul appeals to the kind of person we are, the, the quality of person we are, to explain why it is that we shouldn't continue in sin that grace may abound. Well, if we're saved by grace, why shouldn't we just go off and sin and it doesn't matter anymore? And Paul's answer is, we are a different kind of person. We are a kind of person who is dead to sin and alive to God. You know, like Paul says elsewhere, right? If anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation, right? All things are made new. We are new creatures in Christ. We're part of the new creation reality when we're in Christ. That is a change, not just of our status, not just how God sees us. It is a change of our nature, a change of who we are. It is both a change of our status and a change of our nature, right? And, and Paul's, uh, Paul's point here in Romans uh, chapter 6 especially is that we now need to live out that identity in Christ. We need to live like who we actually are. Present ourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. Because we are alive from the dead, now we present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead. In other words, presenting ourselves to God as we really are. It's a change of our nature. I love the story of, uh, of Augustine. Where, where there was, you know, he lived a licentious life at one point before he was converted, and then he got converted, and there's a story, <laughs> really, I'm not sure it's true, but this gets repeated, and, and, and it does illustrate the point, and, and that is that one time Augustine saw one of his former, former lovers, and then, you know, he didn't respond to her uh, like she thought he would, and he said, or sorry, she said to him, don't you recognize me, it is I, whatever her name was, and then Augustine said, yes, but it is no longer I. Augustine. Uh, he, he is a different person now. And, and that's what, it, what happens when we are in Christ, united to Christ. We are not the same people we used to be. There is a change in our nature. We are dead to sin and we are alive to God in Christ. But then, then moving on to Romans chapter 7, we realize and Paul realizes that there is something that will prevent you from living out your new identity in Christ, which is being under the law. Somebody cannot live out their new identity in Christ. They cannot present themselves to God as those who are alive from the dead if they are under the law in the sense that the law rules over them. And that is because, as Paul says elsewhere, the power of sin is in the law. The law is that cruel taskmaster that will suck the life out of us and condemn us. Why? Because we're not perfect. Because we haven't lived up to its standard. And so it will, it will only condemn us. And we cannot live out our new identity in Christ unless and until we are taken out of the law. It isn't, we are no longer under it. And so Romans 7 uh, is, is really all about how it is that we are taken out from under the, um, the bondage of the law that we may live out the new identity in Christ that Paul spoke of in chapter 6. So Romans 7 presumes the truth 
of chapter 6. It presumes that idea of a, a new identity in Christ and then explains how it is that we are no longer under the law, the law which is the power of sin is in the law, so that we may live out our new identity in Christ. Now, how does Christ uh, break us free from the power of the law? How does he do that? Well, and the answer, you know, broadly considered, is through our union with him. See, not only does our union with Christ change our identity so that we are now dead to sin and alive to God, you know, in Romans 6, it also changes who or what we are under, who or what we belong to. And we learn that in Romans 7. How does our union with Christ break us free from the law? Well, well, the answer is that Christ died through Christ's death. Paul says there in verse 1 of chapter 7, the law has jurisdiction over someone as long as they live. That's a general principle that all would understand to be true. And you understand this to be true, right? Because you never really see you know, police going out in a graveyard to serve a warrant for arrest, do you? I mean, that just doesn't happen. You're never at a funeral, and then the detective knocks in and says, you know, sorry to break this up, but we have some questions for the person who's in the casket. Like that. that just doesn't happen, right? I mean, when you're dead, the, <laughs> you're out from under that, you know, that law, right? Death brings you out from under the law. That's the general principle that Paul is, is working with. And in Christ, we die to the law. Death takes you out from under the jurisdiction of the law. In Christ, we die. However, it's not quite as simple as those you know, illustrations that I just gave you about the graveyard and the, and the funeral because what we're talking about here is not so much our physical death but our spiritual death. And yet, even as we die, yet we live. So Paul's illustration here that he gives is actually quite complicated. But it's complicated for a reason, because the truth that he's trying to illustrate is a complicated one. And he gives this illustration where death frees somebody from the law, but it frees somebody from the law and they continue on living. And that's the illustration there of a married woman not being free to belong to another as long as her husband is living. Right? There's, a, there's a law, the law of the husband, literally it says in the text, that prevents her from going off and belonging to another as long as her husband is living. But if her husband dies, she's then free, completely free, especially in the Jewish context, to, to belong to another. She can go off and get married again. She can, she can belong to somebody else and the law will not condemn her. The law is, in a sense, ruling over her and telling her that she is wrong if she belongs to another until her husband dies and then she is free. And Paul relates this to the Christian life. Look there at verse 4. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. So we are dead to the law. The law no longer has its, its condemning jurisdiction over us through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Just as the woman is then free to belong to another. We are then free to belong to another. Who are we free to belong to? The one who has been raised from the dead. Christ in His resurrection glory. We can belong to Him and live out our union and identity in Him because through His death, 
we are no longer bound to the law. Before we are in Christ, we are under the law. And remember, the law is a cruel captor. The law tells us that we have to, to measure up and, and, and we'll never get there. And so we are always condemned. But in Christ, we belong to Him. Now, one of the keys to understanding this passage is to realize that Paul is not talking about being free from the law so that we can go off and sin as much as we want. Oh, wouldn't it be great to not be under the law and I can do whatever I want? That's not what's going on here. He's talking about being free from the law so we can belong to Christ. We can't belong to Christ and to the law at the same time because they're, they're, they're mutually exclusive because they both offer different ways in which we're able to have life. The law says, do this and you will live. Christ says, come to me and I will give you my life. We can't have both. They're mutually exclusive. If we're under one, we can't be under the other. So Christ has to break us free from being under the law, under that system that promises life as a condition of obedience that we may belong to him and have his life freely given to us by him. And you'll notice here, Paul is using the metaphor of marriage. Belonging to Christ is, is kind of like belonging to a husband. It's a, it's a relationship, a close, both legal and intimate relationship. And, and I think that metaphor, the, the, the fact that he chose that metaphor also speaks to something of why it is that, that, that the law is, is not God's, um, you know, God's plan for us. The law is, is not going to work. The metaphor of marriage helps explain why it is that being under the law cannot be God's end goal for us. And that is because God doesn't want simply a master-servant relationship with us. A master-servant relationship would be a, ser would be a relationship basically governed by law. But that's not what God wants for us. That wasn't the plan back in the garden where, where God promised life for us. God had a, a plan for life, a plan for union, a plan for fellowship. No, God wants to relate to us much more like a husband relates to his wife. Fellowship, intimacy, love, warmth, joy, knowledge, friendship. He delights in us. God invented marriage as a picture of the kind of relationship that we as the church would have with Christ, in part now and in full when he comes. And we can't have that fellowship and intimacy with Christ while we belong to the law because the law, as I said, is a, is, a, is, a, is a captor that says, do this and you will live. And Christ says to us, all I have I share with you. That doesn't mean that there's any less need to obey him. No, we must obey him. But we obey him in the context of a relationship where he invites us into himself to, to know him deeply. It strikes me here that Paul is, is uh, most likely thinking of the Exodus event when he writes this. The Exodus event is when God took the people to himself to belong to him, to be his people. Israel is the wife of Yahweh, the, the Old Testament says. The Exodus event is when God constitutes his people as his people. But if you read 
the book of Exodus, in order for Israel to be joined to Yahweh, to God, their relationship with Egypt had to be broken. And the language of that release from Egypt, it's interesting, it's actually the language of divorce. Divorce from Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. God had to break that relationship with that cruel, abusive husband so that he could join the people to himself. And likewise, Christ has to break us from that relationship to the law so that we can belong to him. And how does he do that? He does that by incorporating us into him so that when Christ dies, we die. We die to the law. It no longer has the ruling authority over us. It no longer has the power of condemnation over us. It is no longer the system that governs how we have life. We no longer have to be condemned for the sins of the past, always trying to make up for that. It does not condemn us anymore. We are, there is no condemnation for the one who is in Christ. Okay, so, so our first point there is how Christ breaks us free from the law. The second, and, and that deals with who we belong to, the second point I want us to see is the kind of identity that we have in him. And the emphasis there is on the kind of identity, okay? What I, I want us to see here is that because being joined to Christ is like nothing else in the world, the kind of identity that we have in Him is like any other kind of identity. It's not just that it's unlike any other identity. No, that the quality of the identity that we have in Christ is unlike anything else. Or, or, or to put it another way, what I want to see here in the second point is what Paul means by the contrast between no longer living under the law, but living under grace, point he makes in chapter 6. Or, or what is the difference between, as he says at the end of this passage I read, serving in the oldness of the written code or the newness of the spirit? What kind of contrast is that? It's a contrast between modes of living, to be sure, but it's also a contrast between modes of having an identity. It's a different kind of being who we are. And I think, I think what Paul is getting at here is that every other identity that we have is ultimately an identity based on the works of the law. Behind every other belonging, belonging to a nation, belonging to a sports team, belonging to a tribe, belonging to a political party, belonging to a school, is a kind of belonging that says, you got to measure up. And after we've measured up, we have to keep measuring up. That's how an identity that is according to the law works. Tim Keller, I think, gets at this so well in his book, Counterfeit Gods. And he has a quote in his book where he quotes Madonna. Right, the, 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 the singer, she's, she's you know, worldly, but successful in her worldliness by, by pretty much every standard, right? She's made it. But listen to what she said in a moment of honesty. I'm not sure where Keller pulls this from, but, but he, he quotes this in his book. And he quotes it, that Madonna says, I have an iron will, and, and all of my life, has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. 
I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Now, if we had more time, we could talk about how idolatry is infused in that law-based identity. Um, read Keller's book. He goes into that. But, but I think I read that there because I, I think that that's a description of what it looks like to have our identity based on the law. We always have to prove ourselves. But our identity in Christ is different for two main reasons. It's a different kind of identity for two different reasons. First, it's different because we are passive. Now, we're not entirely passive throughout the whole thing. We are active, but we are passive first. Verse 4, we read, you have died to the law. But, you know, it could actually be translated, and perhaps better translated, you have been put to death to the law. In other words, it's, it emphasizes that, that this is something that has been done to us. You have been put to death. This is not in any way, shape, or form a command. You need to die to the law. The Bible does command us to do things like that. But this is not one of those places. It, it tells us what has been done to us. We have been put to death to the law. And how are we put to death through the law? This is where it's just fascinating. Paul's theology is fascinating. Through the body of Christ. See that there in verse 4? The death that, ha that Paul has in mind here is very much yours. You have been put to death. It's not physical death. It's spiritual death, which is even more real and more lasting and significant than physical death. You have died. But it wasn't anything in your body that constituted you as dead, that made you dead. You've died, but not in your body. Strangely, you've died in Christ's body. You've been put to death through the body of Christ. That's quite remarkable if we think about it. And just underscores our passivity. It's not you that, that, that makes this happen, right? I mean, if we think about it, death is personal, isn't it? Right? You die when your body stops working. Well, we could imagine somebody dying in your place, but it's really hard to imagine you dying in somebody else's body. That's just not how it feels like life works. And yet, we die, we die in the body of Christ. And not only that, we belong to the one who has been raised from the dead, which is to say we also are raised in the body of Christ. We die in the body of Christ and we are raised in the body of Christ. We die in somebody else's body and we are raised in somebody else's body. It's difficult to imagine how our role in that could be any more passive, don't you think? That's not something we accomplish on our own. It's something that has been accomplished for us, very personal, very, very real for us, but in and through 
the person of Christ. Every other identity requires you to do something to get it, or if you're born into it, you do something to keep it. Think of the Madonna quote I read earlier. Our identity in Christ is different. We are passive. Christ obtains this identity for us. 1 Corinthians 1.30. This is one of John Calvin's favorite verses, and I think there's a reason why. It's by His doing that you are in Christ who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. By His doing, this is a reality in you. The second thing that makes this identity totally different than any other identity is that the identity we take on is the identity of a person. We take on the identity of a person. This also is a bit odd, but that's because our union with Christ is unlike anything else in the world. In Paul's metaphor, we used to belong to the law. As I said before, every other kind of belonging in the world is a kind of belonging to the law. That's, that's working underneath and around every other kind of belonging. And that means that every other kind of belonging is ultimately in, impersonal. Marriage may be the exception to this, and that is because marriage points to Christ. But this kind of belonging to the law is a kind of belonging that if you think about it, and we see this being played out in America right now, it's a, it's a kind of belonging that creates divisions, If I belong to something that you don't, then I might not like you, and you might not like me. Or if we belong to the same thing, then we're in competition to see who really belongs, who's at the top. Belonging to the law is impersonal and ends in isolation. But we die to the law so that we may belong to a person to the risen Christ, to the one who died and rose again. We have died to the law so that our identity can be not just in this thing, in Christianity, but in Christ himself, to the risen, glorified Christ. We belong to him. Let me just underscore this by taking a quick glance at another passage, which I think helps us understand this idea even better, and that's Philippians chapter 3. I want to look there also because it's alleged sometimes that Philippians 3 cannot be reconciled with Romans 7, and I think that's a mistake in how we read both of those passages. It's really that they're actually saying the same thing. Um, I'm just going to mention a few things there. This can be another passage you go back and read later. But Philippians 3 is all about how Paul used to have confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh is law-based identity, law-based belonging. I can belong to this thing in myself. That's what confidence in the flesh is all about. I'm a product of the work of my hands. Who I am is because of what I've made myself to be in and through these different things that I belong to. And Paul said that if anyone had confidence in the flesh, he had more, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness that comes from the law, blameless. Notice there that in each case, just about every case, Paul tells us who he is by telling us who he belongs to. He's a Pharisee, that is a member of this group. He's a persecutor of the church. He's a member of that group. All these elite groups that Paul has belong to based upon his efforts. One New Testament scholar who I've come to appreciate greatly, a guy named Grant McCaskill, 
Um, he has said that, uh, and he has reasons in the Greek for saying this, what I won't get into now, but, but when Paul is talking about a Hebrew of Hebrews and so on, it's like he's, he's talking about various badges that he wore. You know what a, ba- a badge, right? If you've accomplished something, you get a badge. And, and that kind of shows what you've done and also shows what, who you belong to at the same time, right? I got my, this merit badge, so I belong to this group of people because of what I have done. And all of Paul's identity markers here are basically the badges that he wore because of the works of his flesh that he has done. And then what does Paul say? He says, All of that I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And see, what Paul is doing there is he's not replacing simply one, um, one badge for another badge. One, one uh, thing that he could belong to for another thing that he could belong to. One impersonal identity for another impersonal identity. No, he's forsaking all of the other things that he belonged to for Christ himself, to belong to a person. Paul says, I want to know him. And he says, I seek to lay hold of the one who has laid hold of me. That's what Paul wants now. He doesn't just want to belong to this impersonal group. He doesn't just want to identify with this thing. He wants to belong and belong even deeper to this person who has grabbed hold of him. Or another way to look at this is what Paul says in uh, Galatians at one point where he says, he was advancing in Judaism far beyond my contemporaries. I was advancing in Judaism far beyond my contemporaries. In other words, I had more badges than any of them. And then Paul says that he, um, uh, that, that, uh, he has died and Christ lives in him. That's the, the opposite of that advancement, the opposite of that law-based uh, identity that he would belong to this based upon his works. And, and here's why Romans 7 and Philippians 3 are so important. Because even, even though we belong to Christ by faith, even though we, we have that identity in him, and we know that, and we sing about that, and we hear messages about that, there is always this subtle temptation to, as Paul says, begin by the Spirit and then try to be perfected by the flesh. There's always this temptation to, to gravitate to that law-based identity, to, to want our works to count for something, to advance us to something, to want to be in that in-group somehow or some way. And as we saw before, they're mutually exclusive. You can't take one and the other. To, to take Christ is to forsake the law-based identity, is to turn our back on trying to get the badges. Let me say something a little bit about my journey in this. Um, I, I originally did a sermon on this passage to a bunch of pastors, and I explained a little bit about my journey as a pastor that was particularly uh, helpful for them, but it can relate to anybody as well. I was a pastor for about seven years, and, and at first I found it quite easy not to find my identity in how the church was doing, because the church was a mess. 
Other people had messed up the church, not me. I just inherited all their problems. And, and, and I would go to pastor's meetings, and the pastors would say, oh, there's Mike over there. His church is really messed up. And, you know, it was kind of nice to have my identity as the pastor of the messed up church because then everybody wanted to take me out to lunch and encourage me. Like, this is great. You know, keep doing this. This is fine. But eventually, by God's grace, his word began to have an impact on the church. And I've shared that story, I think, in, in other contexts here. And it, the church began to change, and people began to grow, and people were converted. And although this was wonderful in so many ways, there became a challenge for me then. Not to let my identity get wrapped up in the state of the church. I would go to a pastor's meetings, and instead of me being the one who had the messed up church, now I was the one who had the not really quite as messed up church, and I would think to myself, but is my church really good enough to be part of this? Do I really belong? And part of me would be evaluating myself to see if I really fit in. And after a while, I had to recognize that the problems that were in my church were not because somebody else had messed it up, but because I had messed it up. Being a pastor is a lot like being a, a, a parent in that you see your weaknesses reflected back to yourself. And, and there, was, there were times where I was, I was pathetic. I would stand up to preach God's word and then I'd feel defeated because that new family didn't come back. Or one time I was really happy that somebody was there. And then they fell asleep in the middle of the sermon. There was a temptation to, to neglect my family, to, to work too much. The church growing was salvation. The church shrinking was condemnation. You see, I was living according to the law. And at this point, you might expect me to say, well, and then I understood the gospel and everything changed, except that's, that's not really what happened. I knew the gospel the whole time, and I realized how pathetic that was, and I was, I was fighting it, sometimes more successfully than others. But the temptation never goes away. God put Romans 7 in the Bible because he knew that you and I would always be tempted to find our identity in something law-based, rather than in the person of the risen Christ. Friends, belonging to Christ is a different kind of identity. It is first passive, and then it is active. It is belonging to a person. If you haven't experienced it as a different kind of identity, you haven't yet penetrated enough into what your union with Christ is all about. Well, let's, let's do our, conclude with our last point. How then do we live? Notice what Paul says is the result of belonging to the resurrected Christ. Look there at the end of verse 4. We belong to the one who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. There, there, this, has a, this translates into something. This has an impact on how we live. Because we belong to the risen Christ, we bear fruit for God. Now, there, that's, that's basically clear. That's not disputed in this passage. There is some difference of opinion as to in what sense Paul is, is getting at this. What's the metaphor that's, that's sort of governing this? It's possible that Paul is still thinking in terms of the marriage metaphor that he was talking about in the, very, in the previous verse. As a wife brings... And, and so one, um, one Puritan pastor, a guy named Walter Marshall, interprets the passage this way. He says... 
as a wife brings forth children through her union with her husband, so also believers bring forth fruit through their union with Christ. This idea of bearing fruit for God is still governed by the marriage metaphor, perhaps. Obviously, there's nothing sexual about our union with Christ. That's not the point. It's a metaphor. And the point is that that just as children come through the union of marriage, so also the fruit that pleases God comes through our union with Christ. You know, a wife can never have a child all on her own without her husband and say, hey, look what I did. So also it's impossible for believers to produce good fruit in their lives and say to God, hey, aren't you impressed with this? Look what I did. Aren't you proud of me? No. The fruit that pleases God can only come about as we engage with Christ relationally in the bonds that He has established with us. He creates the union. He comes in human form, taking a nature like ours. He suffers on the cross, dies in our place, rises again from the dead, and sends His Spirit that, he may, that we may be united to Him and have fruit in our lives that comes from His working in us. He produces a living faith, a, a hope-filled life. He produces the resting, relying, trusting, and clinging to Christ by which we bring fruit. In other words, He lays hold of us that we may, because He's laid hold of us, lay hold of Him and have fruit from Him. Paul basically restates this point of verse 4 and verses 5 and 6. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, that is living in that law-based sinful identity, our sinful passions aroused by the law. See, the sin is aroused by the law, which is why we have to be taken away from the law so we can belong to Christ and bear fruit. Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. The old way of the written code was to have our relationship with God, with Christ, dependent upon our ability to keep the law. The new way of the Spirit is to have the Spirit produce fruit in us. Paul is building here off of what God predicted back in Ezekiel 36. God said in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And, I, and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I will give your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Notice what God is predicting for his people. He's predicting a relationship of belonging. You are my people. And a relationship that is fruitful. His Spirit will cause them to obey. And this is exactly what is fulfilled in Christ. The contrast between the written code and the Spirit is, among other things, a contrast between internal and external. The code is something external. It exists outside of us. It's impersonal. Everything depends upon us keeping it. But the Spirit is inside of us. He is inside of us. We learn in the next chapter of Romans that the Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. 
the one who makes us belong to him, right, as his children, and who makes us cry, Abba, Father, a term of closeness and intimacy. Abba, Father is Christ's cry. That's how he addresses the Father. It becomes our cry in union with him. The Spirit causes that relational turning towards God through which the, the fruit is then produced in our lives. We don't know how to pray, but the Spirit prays on our behalf with groans that are too deep for words. The Spirit works that relational closeness into us, the intimacy with Christ in us that produces fruit. The Spirit's role is not, please believe this, it is not to give us that extra oomph we need to raise our moral game so that we can finally have the strength to live rightly. That's actually a very Catholic view of the Spirit. That's not a Christian view of the Spirit. Rather, the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ who works in our hearts to make Christ real in us, to make Christ known in us. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Well, there is so much more we could say here, but I want to give us, just in closing, a, a couple specific application points here. Getting very practical here in, in, in you know, talking about these truths is hard. Because when we get real practical, it's very easy for us to revert back to the law. Okay, what do I actually do based upon this? That can be like, okay, how do I live according to the law? But on the other hand, the, the, the correct uh, answer is not to abandon anything that we do at all. No, we bear fruit. We need to seek to lay hold of Him. If you hear this message and the overriding um, question you have is, what do I do? Then you may have missed the point. And nevertheless, this should inspire us to do all sorts of things. Well, <clears throat> I would suggest that a way to uh, have our, our you know, application um, rightly directed is to keep the marriage metaphor in our minds. <clears throat> and, and if we think about it, um, uh, so, so three things here. First, because we belong to him, we should pursue relational intimacy with him. The, remember, our belonging is to a person. So the, the Christian faith is not at all about advancing in Christianity, as you would advance in your education or advance in your career. It's about knowing a person more deeply. It's about knowing him because he has first known you. This is why prayer is so incredibly important as a Christian. If you don't speak to your spouse, your marriage will flounder, right? If you don't speak to Christ, in what sense do you really belong to him? Christ wants to be with us. He has done, he, he has come, <laughs> taken on our nature, died on the cross, freed us from the law, that we may belong to him that we may draw near to him as a person. To not serve in the oldness of the written code, but the newness of the Spirit, is for us to draw near to him as a person, because that's what the Spirit does in our hearts. That's, that's who he is. It is the Spirit of Christ in our hearts 
that we may know him. So first, pursue the person of Christ. Second, it is good to have structure in our Christian lives and to obey the law in order to serve this relational goal. Let me illustrate that again with marriage, because I think that marriage metaphor helps shape how we take this illustration. And whether you're married or not, I think you can, the application still makes sense. Sometimes people, especially when they first get married, wrongly think that to have a good marriage, everything has to be spontaneous. So they wouldn't want to schedule time together or, or, or you know, plan a date night or something like that, because that somehow wouldn't be relational. But after you've been married for a while and start to have kids and all, you, you realize that when there's competing priorities, sometimes the most relational thing to do is to schedule some time, structure your lives uh, in such a way that, that there will be time together. And sometimes husbands and wives would also create rules for themselves about what is and is not okay to do with people of the opposite sex, right? You know, we, we don't do this with others because we're married, or, or transparency and texting or email and, and whatnot. And this structure and these rules can be a great help to marriage as long as they're done for the sake of that relational goal. They're never an end in themselves. Rather, they're there in order to serve the relationship. If your spouse says to you, Oh, I, I feel distant from you. You can't say, well, well, look, honey, I've kept all the rules, right? You can't ever think that, that keeping the rules somehow earns you something. Look, I've, I've kept every date night. Now, now you owe me something. It doesn't work like that. You can't try to earn the affection of your spouse by obeying the rules. It just doesn't work like that. In the same way, it is good for us to have structure in our Christian life. It is good for us to have commitments to read our Bibles every day or to pray every day. And we might schedule it. We might keep a record of it, but not for the end goal of, of you know, checking it off, for the end goal of knowing the person. Furthermore, God has given us rules that we must follow. <laughs> he knows our hearts and how prone they are to idolatry. So he's given us rules. Flee sexual immorality. Do not forsake the assembling together. Those are rules not for the sake of obeying rules because we would be under them and condemned by them, but rules that guard the relationship. Finally, expect tension as we live between the now and the not yet. And again, the marriage metaphor helps us here, particularly the way in which Paul uses the marriage metaphor differently in different places. Sometimes he uses the marriage metaphor, like in this passage, to talk about a present belonging to Christ, something we have now. Other times he uses the marriage for, metaphor to talk about the hope of what we have to come. One day when he returns, then he will take us to himself. Both are true. We belong to Him now. We are irrevocably His. And yet the fullness of what that means has not yet been revealed. There is a sense in which we are still betrothed to Christ, awaiting that final consummation. 
given the fact that both are true, we should expect awkward moments now when our feelings don't match what we know is true. When the the, the circumstance of our lives don't match the fact that we are belonging to the King. And so we need, and I thought of this as Rob was giving his his, uh, report and testimony, uh, we need a realism about how severe sin is in our lives, about the pool of idolatry, about the way in which sin affects us spiritually and physically too. The body can be broken. We need realism about that. And we also need a faith-filled biblical optimism about the fact that, that what God, that God's Spirit living in us will do amazing things. He will do amazing things. And that our past failures and sins don't condemn us because He breaks us free from the law. We need both. We need to have both. One day Christ will return. And even our physical bodies will bear witness to the fact that we belong to Him because we will have a body like His. And the whole world will be made new. So, who are you? And what or who do you belong to? We're always going to belong to something. That's how God made us. Christ has come, died and rose again, that we may belong to him. Let's pray. Our, our God in heaven, we, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the miracle of the incarnation for his faithful life, for his obedient death in our place, and for the resurrection, that in his person and work, he has taken on our sinful nature in such a way that he has broken the power of it and of the law and has freed us from our our condemnation and made it so that we are joined with him by faith. Lord, we thank you for this reality. We thank you for this story. May we be people, Lord, who, who seek Christ more and more and seek to ground our lives, to implicate our lives into that story because we belong to him. May we be people who have that realism about the tragedy of sin and the brokenness of this world, and yet that faith-filled optimism of union with Christ, making all things new. Lord, may we be people who live in that tension, trusting in you and longing for ultimate consummation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.